House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Joining us now is uh, an author of a book coming out on Christmas Day, December 25th, how appropriate. It's called The Cult of Christianity. Uh, the author is John Werner. Thank you for taking time to talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I, I, I want to uh, first uh, address this in the sense of cult of Christianity, how churches control, contain, and convert. Um, that's a, that's going to be a pretty controversial title and releasing it on the holiday of, of Christ, right? So, uh, wow. Um, wh- what, made, what made you go this way and on that day? Right. So um, I grew up as a cult. Um, and uh, it was probably actually a fairly typical experience um, for an evangelical um, in the U.S. Um, I had a pretty good family. Like there wasn't anything that would probably strike as particularly um, traumatic about it. But as I grew up in it and started taking ownership of the faith um, later on, I decided to... Um, pursue a degree in pastoral ministry. And I did such. Um, I had my Bachelor's of Arts in Biblical Exposition from uh, Moody Bible Institute. And the further I went into um, the rabbit hole, so to speak, I kept noticing that um, my what I really feared about Christianity um, was, was true. <laughs> um, and that's that it was a lot more about um, preserving power for people who had uh, obtained it. Um, and so uh, kind of fast forwarding to why I'm now releasing it on Christmas Day. Um, well, one, December 25th is not significant in any kind of historical understanding of Christianity. Um, and there's a lot of traditions borrowed from pagan cultures. And um, my own personal uh attitude has always been a little bit of a stick it to the man kind of guy um so i figured hey december 25th seems like a good day to uh, release a book um dismantling something a lot of people care about so what what is it that they taught you when you were going to ministerial school that that brought you to these conclusions um so it's it's interesting right because a lot of what I was explicitly taught um, was um, at least packaged as um, as ways to do ministry. And the ways to do ministry, you would think, would involve a lot of um, practical admin stuff. It would involve um, helping um, less fortunate people. But really what they talk about more than anything is crowd control. Um, and at first... When you first hear it, it might not sound that way, um, but when you actually sit back and reflect on what they're talking about, that's what it is. So, uh, for example, I did a pastoral internship at one church, and me and the other pastoral intern came up with this idea to um, help uh, local homeless people by bringing the church together and making little kits that would have stuff like socks, you know, protein bars, those kind of things. And we could just distribute them because uh, I was in Spokane, Washington at the time. And uh, Spokane, Washington has a, has a huge homelessness uh, crisis, to be honest. And so we were like, this is a way we can help our community, get the church involved, all of this. And at first, the leadership of that church was way on board. Um, but then towards the end of that experience, they started going, you know, we just don't know what kind of size socks we need. We should just cancel the whole thing. And um, it was really odd, but what I realized was happening was um, me and the other pastoral intern were honestly starting to threaten the control of that particular pastor. Um, and we we had no ill intentions, um, but our structure is really, really important to churches, and they will preserve it at almost any cost. So, so is this something that winds up getting into the curriculum when you're trained to be a pastor? That you know you have to build a flock and then you protect it from any any other pastor coming in. 
um, is is it really about sort of almost building a company as and in, in having a set of customers rather than it is sharing uh, the good word? <laughs> mm. Well, um, that's a great question because I, I do have a chapter towards the end of my book where I talk about multi-level marketing, um, and there certainly is a parallel. Um, it's just instead of uh, a you know gimmicky knife, the product is salvation. Um, and, uh, there is definitely an encouragement and, and I am being very specific here with evangelicalism. I say Christianity because it matches the alliteration better. Um, but like, I'm, I'm specifically talking about evangelicals who put an emphasis on conversion. Um, and yeah, I would say while they do, they try to refrain from explicitly saying, um, keep other pastors away and stuff. There's a certain vibe you can tell when it's like, you gotta watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. But if you actually dig into what they mean by that, they're talking about people with ideas. Um, a lot of the theme of what I talk about in the book is just how closed-mindedness is, um, is what, uh, their goal is. Because the second that their flock, um, start to open their minds, that's when they start losing their, um, control and containment. So let me ask you, when you watch some of these televangelists on TV, like Jim Baker or um, maybe going back a few years, Ted Haggard or Swagger, um, what goes through your mind when you, when, um, how they try to raise money and, and, and I guess what you, you might call it manipulate people? Yeah. Um, well, when I watch Jim Baker, I think that food looks disgusting. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so they're kind of like um, uh, exaggerated forms of what I think happens on a smaller scale um, throughout the country when I see televangelists. Because if you went to, you know, the church down the road um, and started talking to the pastor about televangelists, they would quickly condemn them as well. There wouldn't be much of an argument. You're like, yeah, those guys are crazy example just last week on the jim baker show they had a guest on who was praising donald trump because trump is creating a space force that will protect us from the apocalyptic asteroid that was prophesized in the bible to come and blow us up <sighs> which is you know crazy stuff but i mean it's on tv and people see this as you know here's somebody that people are calling and giving their money to um i mean Part of what I believe personally is just a lot of TV is garbage. I don't know how half the stuff like gets on there, um, so I don't know. But oh, but I have known people who have subscribed to people people who believe equally as crazy things um, at, on a more local level. Um, and I, what I think is cult leaders in general, what they're doing is they're exploiting real human needs. Um, and one real human need that I, I believe all humans have is um, is the sense of needing a sense of belonging and needing a sense of um, of understanding, and cult leaders can um, kind of uh, use take um, take ownership and weaponize uh, what they call truth, and so I don't know the televangelist scale again. It's it's kind of too mind boggling to even dissect. But on a local scale where, you know, you do have the pastor who's, you know, um, having an affair with the secretary, but like no one says boo about it. I think the reason those things can happen is they're like, yeah, but that's our truth guy. That's the guy who, if we don't have him, where will we go? How will we think? And um, it's really just this uh, dependence on a leader to um, to function. I mean, life is tough and sometimes the simplest solution says, I'll just do whatever that guy tells me. Yeah, I mean, people do tend to take cues. It does sort of shock me, though, that the it seems like the opposite of a lot of things in life, where, yes, TV is crazy, but you would figure that the biggest churches with the TV stations would would present the more watered-down versions of the religion, the more sane stuff, maybe somewhat like Joel Olstein. Mm -hmm. um, but typically what it's been for the last few decades is is the most radicalized and weirdest stuff makes it onto TV. So when I see your book title, I say, oh, you know, he must be talking about the televangelists because these are the most, these are people who really look like cult leaders. 
Yeah, they certainly do. I mean, um, and actually what I try to focus on in my book is that's the obvious guy, right? We can all kind of point and laugh. Um, what's less obvious is your pastor next door, um, who seems like a nice guy. Um, and like, you've seen him, you know, help jumpstart someone's car, so you think he's a hero. Um, and what, uh, I tend to focus on is, and, and what frankly scares me more is, uh, with my vast experience in different churches, like, realizing, um, that the structure itself, um, lends itself to uh, cult leaders arising and cult followers being brainwashed. Um, one more point on the televangelist thing as far as like a contrast between someone like Joel Osteen and uh, other people such as um, Mark Driscoll um, and like these kind of like minor characters that maybe not everyone's heard about. Um, and then you have someone like Jim Baker, who's everyone's heard about because he's kind of ridiculous. Um What's interesting about the the sort of minor televangelist uh, dynamic or minor mini-celebrity pastor idea is those guys do get to power because, um, well, authority is, always, is typically given, right, not forced. And I think people give these guys um, authority um, because they're passionate and they, they speak to a need. Um, and a lot of what I learned in my pastoral training was um, it's about raising needs. I can't tell you how many hours we talked about that. Find the needs of your congregation and raise them and let them know you're aware of them. And I think that makes a lot of people feel seen and heard. Um, and they gravitate towards feeling seen and heard in a world that increasingly um, you don't feel seen or heard. Uh, everybody's looking at their phone and caring about their day. So when a, when a guy gets up on stage and says, I know you're lonely, uh, you gravitate towards them. Yeah, but this is all in how you do it, right? I mean, knowing what somebody else's needs are can just be normal empathy and sympathy. Um, it, but It you, could be. <laughs> and, and you can do it in other ways where it's clearly... Um, Different. Um, so, for example, um, I remember I got called. I got pulled into when I was much younger. Uh, one of the Scientology buildings. Mm, yeah. I said, "Oh, we want you to come and uh, you know take our little test and and talk to our person." I said, "Okay." I was eighteen. I didn't know what it was. And they sure. said, "So, so, so, what is it you're looking for in life?" And I think I said something along the lines of, "I want to, you know." Uh, date more girls or something like that. <laughs> Which, when you're an 18 year old fella, that's, you know, your Perfectly number one need. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then it became very quickly. They said, well, you need to buy this book and this book and this book. Then you need to give us this and then come to our meeting. And, and, and I said, well, I don't, I'm not buying any books. I don't read. I'm 18. And they said, well, you know, how you, how are you going to meet girls if you don't buy our book? <laughs> So it became immediately, you know, apparent that they were going to take whatever I said to them as a need and use use that to exploit um, to get what they wanted. Yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, that's something I was a man. It's it's hard now because it wasn't to me that long ago. Um, but there were there was a time where, um, I, well, I'll tell a little anecdote. Uh, there was a preaching competition at the school I went to, which is a mind-boggling concept. Um, but uh, all the people in my particular major had to compete uh, to see who could preach the best. Um, is that like one is, of those rap com competitions, kind of? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't. Yeah, that would have been fun if there was a beat behind it. I can't believe. We, yeah, I mean, the poor judges have to listen to these hour-long lectures back to back to back from these, you know, twenty-two-year-olds. My gosh, what a horrible thing. Um, but I did end up winning, and so part of the um, reward for winning was you got to speak in chapel, which was uh, mandatory for people to go, you know, three times a week or whatever. And so people were forced to listen to me. And I gave a sermon, and, you know, it was a decent sermon. It wasn't too bad, but a lot of what I did was that raising of needs. I talked about loneliness because I knew my school, and I knew people um, felt very lonely at my school, like they didn't have people they could confide in. And afterwards, people were asking me the craziest life advice questions. They were asking, well, you know, I don't know what I should do after college. Like, do you have any career advice? And I'm like, I'm 22, and I just gave a sermon about loneliness, and now you automatically 
um, think I'm qualified to give you advice. Um, so I think by its very nature, you just see someone speaking and you, you gravitate towards that person. We do it with celebrities all the time. Um, the biggest problem in Christianity is all the while these things are going on, um, people are actually have needs that the churches could meet and they're not. Um, and they pretend to and get tax write-offs. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, heinous things going on behind closed doors. So let me ask you, who talking about who becomes a preacher? Mm. You know, so I, I you know, I, I'm in political science. I study politicians and what they do and why they do it. And you know, politicians are, are different than other people. They have a need to be recognized. They want to. You know, be up in front of people, and they want power and control over other people. Is this? Are these things that you find in in people who become preachers? Is is the whole setup of it designed just so that you know it's appealing to those folks, and then the ones who are best at controlling others are the ones who are going to rise to the top? Uh, well, I definitely think in regards to wanting to be recognized, that's why I'm an author. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, that's why uh, I'm a professor, too. Right, so. right, right. Yeah, for sure. Um, Everybody has it to some degree, but I think, I think there's a difference in, you know, you, you and I write books and we sell books, but that's a voluntary thing. You know, someone will buy it and read it or not. Whereas, exactly. it, you know, if you want to be a politician or a preacher, it's, it's more you want to have more direct control over someone. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on. I mean, I can speak for me personally that um, I felt a calling, as they say. Um, and that's the conditioning of evangelicalism is um, they talk about calling in this vague way um, and don't ever really define what it is, how it happens. Um, or anything like that. It's like an internal voice that tells you you're supposed to be a pastor. Um, and, of course, they'll reference it as God eventually. Um, but they take a long time to get there. And the reason for that, in my belief, is um, the people who seek to be pastors um, probably didn't choose it themselves very much. What probably happened is they were in their own little church. Well, there's two scenarios that typically happen. One is they grew up in church um, and they were the, the good one. And um, there were probably a lot of people who started talking to their church leaders, as you're conditioned to do, about being future leadership. And the ones that um, that the church is like, I don't know, this guy might change too many things, they'll kind of talk him down. And the guy who kind of is a conformist, they'll talk him up and say, yeah, you should pursue this. Um, in my case, when I decided to pursue pastoral ministry, it was not welcomed by my church. Um, and part of it was because they had known in high school um, all the different issues I had had with them. Uh, the first chapter in my book opens with a story of what I call spiritual abuse. And it was really the first time I understood that churches cared a lot about their power. Um, and so there's... As far as who ends up going into it, I think it really depends on the conditioning they've received um, from their leaders. The second type of person is someone who like got off drugs because of some program and now thinks they gotta become a pastor. Um, that's the second type of person who just wants to have a complete 180 um, life change. And pastor is the opposite of uh, many other types of lives. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I guess if you watch this as an evolutionary process where you have, you know, churches pop up with the pastor and then other pastors come in. I mean, you would think over time that the ones who are best at pulling in people and keeping them there are going to be the ones who are the most successful. And those aren't necessarily people who are giving a good message, right? I mean, there's a different right. set of skills for the marketing and bringing the people back. Mm -hmm. Um let me ask you about, uh, so there's a preacher I've been watching on, on YouTube, and okay. I'm surprised they haven't moved, removed him yet, but he's from Arizona, and it's a real uh, wackadoo church. Um, I'll look up his name in a moment, but he, he, he's against fluoride in the water. And he, oh, he, nice. And he says a really lot of, lot of awful things about, about gay people and, <sighs> and, yep. and, and whatnot. Um, are those cults? These sorts of things are those more culty than 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 the cults that you're concerned with. Mm. 
So uh, maybe what would help is is some of my terms, what, why I've settled on cults. Um, you know, there were other titles I thought about, like Country Club Church and like stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, that's not quite hitting what I mean. And the reason I named my book The Cult of Christianity is what I saw was this clear distinction between leaders and followers. Um, so it's not necessarily the content as horrible as a church like Westboro is, you know, that has a name I can't say um, for their website. Um, those are more heinous, evil, I, I mean, I'm comfortable saying this, heinous, evil people. Um, but it's it, the cult structure... Um, it, we see it more negatively that way, but it probably exists in more subtle ways, too. So while I, I do spend time talking in my book about um, LGBTQIA plus issues, uh, I I think that's kind of a symptom of the cult structure rather than um, necessarily the meat of the content. Okay. What do you think can be done about any of this? I mean, we do see some extreme stuff, but I, I, you seem to be pointing out that some of these techniques are being used at your run-of-the-mill local church here. Yeah. Um, what can be done and what should be done? Um, it's it's it sounds uh, easier than it is. Be open-minded. Um, <laughs> so, like, um, you would be amazed at how many um, Christians I've talked to who have said they're open-minded. And then when I tell them my best friend is uh, trans, they they want to get out of the conversation as soon as possible. Mm. Uh, and it's it's based on this uh, subtext of um, the word sin that's been used um, pretty horrific horrifically in churches. Um, what what churches will typically do is they'll say um, all sin is equal. I, I've studied the Bible in the original language. I can tell you it's nowhere in there. Um, nowhere does it say all sin is equal. There's like one passage that kind of implies all sin is equally forgiven. Uh, um, but it, it, there's nothing that says um, all sin is equal. And uh, it, in fact, in Hebrew, the idea of sin is um, missing the mark or off the path. But that implies you can miss the mark or be off the path by quite a bit or by a little bit. But evangelicals typically treat all sin as the same, or at least they preach they treat all sin as the same. And the reason for that is so that when a church leader messes up when they sin, they can say, well, Jesus forgives them, that's okay. But when a congregate sins, whether they do or not, usually it has to do with challenging authority or failure to submit to authority. I have a lot of stories about that in my book. Um when they fail to do that, they can condemn it. Um, so that's why they kind of uh, make sin this big thing. And that's why you see them, well, you, it kind of blows your mind if you're on the outside and you see someone uh, treat someone um, of a different sexual orientation so terribly when you know people in that church are probably cheating on their wives and there's like, you know, porn addictions. and pa I mean, 50% of pastors are willing to admit they're addicted to porn. That doesn't even count the ones that aren't willing to admit it. Um, and yet they're mad at, like, you know, um, <laughs> people of different sexual orientation. It is truly mind-boggling, but the reason that those inconsistencies happen is because there's an effort to preserve church leaders um, and uh, subjugate church uh, followers. sort of funny you bring up the, the porn because there's a debate brewing, particularly on the Christian right now, um, it seems they want to do a push for a national porn ban online. <laughs> um, but it, it, it strikes me as funny that you have a lot of the preachers who are watching the porn all yeah. the time. All those yeah, efforts, it, it's silly. I mean, like, it, you know, there's a million issues you can point to. Uh, look at abortion where, like, no matter where you fall on the issue, you will see um, – if a if a pastor slept with a secretary and she got pregnant, I have a feeling an abortion would be okay all of a sudden. Um, and uh, yeah, they they do that with issues all the time, um, and it's just about public image. It, it, it's not substantive at all. Mm. Um. So, I guess what this gets me thinking about is is if there isn't that much we can do. I mean, do we need to call out these? These pastors more. I mean, are 
it seems like many of them are are hypocrites. Yeah. And the person who um, comes to my mind immediately is Ted Haggard, who who was against you know gay people, and then it turned out he was engaging in a sure. a, a gay tryst with a lot of crystal meth involved. What a party! Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Um, there's uh, man. So there's a couple of suggestions I have sprinkled throughout. Again, I I'm I'm only 25 right now. I don't know anything. Um, I don't know how to solve any world problems, but uh, my guess would I, I make one argument in my book to just stop paying pastors, just stop paying them, um, because what I've noticed is uh, pastors don't work that hard. <laughs> they, they portray themselves as working really hard, and they really don't. Um, they do some hard, emotionally draining stuff. I mean, I, I give all my disclaimers throughout my book. There are people who really do put in the time, put in the work, and like care about people. And some of those people um, are in those positions, and that was their motivation. And they're they're good people, and I don't want them to feel shamed in any kind of way. Um, the the problem is uh, if God's called you to this, and I'm doing air quotes, called you to this sacrificial ministry then actually sacrifice and don't take a paycheck. Um, because it seems to me like there's certainly no biblical evidence that pastors should be paid. The office of pastor doesn't even exist in the Bible. Um, it, it, there's all these crazy things that we've just all kind of accepted because it's fit into a Western business model. Um, and what's so dangerous about it is you're exploiting real human, um, and I'm comfortable saying real spiritual needs of humans, um, for your own gain. Um, so, yeah, one thing you can do is, uh, I, I say, even cut your pastor's paycheck in half and see if they stick around. Um, and my guess is their call to uh, preach at that church will change into a call to leave that church. Um, and uh, Well, I mean, I guess I, I agree with you, but I, I have to wonder, I mean, if, if it's a full-time job... It's not. Uh, okay, so so, so that's I mean, the important point here is is, is, is is that they show up on the weekend, they they give a speech, and maybe they take a few phone calls, and and so, and, and you're you're saying they could probably have a full time job on top of doing that. Um, I so I've seen I would say that um I've observed a lot of different pastors, I've worked with a lot of different pastors, and then I've interned and been a youth pastor myself. Um, you can you can do about 20 hours of work, like real qualified work. The thing is, you're kind of always on call. At least that's the myth. Um, is that like you're always there for your congregation? Um, I would say for some pastors that might be true, but for most it's not. Um, most pastors will be like, I need to be with my family because family comes first, and then everyone backs off. Um, and they, they've kind of found a loophole where they, they really don't have to work that hard. Now, I, work is work. I mean, like, I don't, I, I'm, when I say don't pay them, I'm only saying don't pay them because they claim to be sacrificial leaders. If they were like, no, we're business people and this is all to make us feel better and they were authentic and everybody knew what was going on, it'd be fine. The problem is you exploit vulnerable people and then, ex and then there's honestly like, um, so many cultures and churches where they go, man, our pastor works so hard and he never requires any thanks. And I'm like, yeah, he does. That's what the offering plate is for. Um, and it's, it's really sad because I, there's a lot of potential for good in churches. I, I think that's why part of my motivation in writing it is I don't think these are just empty buildings where, um, where nothing could get done ever because it's so toxic. I'm like, no, if you just adjust a few things, this really could be a force for good. But as long as the cult mentality of, um, of leaders and followers exists, uh, it's, it's never going to happen. Yeah. So, uh, that sort of leaves us in a strange place. So, um, how many churches are, are out there that you think engage in this sort of thing? Hundreds, thousands, um, so, I can't remember the numbers right off my head, but, um, one thing I know is there's somewhere around 300,000 churches in the U.S., I believe, um, that are, you know, Christian churches, um, so that's still excluding, like, Mormons and stuff, um, which is fun, because Mormons would be like, why are you excluding us? Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, so there's a lot of churches. I would say it's the very power structure by nature lends itself to it. So my guess would be all churches have for some period of time, but we can probably allow a little grace for that and say, okay, human nature isn't always good. Uh, You're going to engage in some bad stuff every now and then. But if I want to say like establishment, um, the uh, consistently like that, my guess would be well over 80% of churches in the U.S., um, are are basically this kind of cult. And what what sort of effect can that have on 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 the flock? So what ha- so, so so what's the typical thing that would happen um, to a person? Maybe not the worst case scenario, but what's what sort of the medium case bad scenario? I say happy holidays, and you feel like I'm persecuting you. Um, <laughs> I mean, like it's a silly example, but it's pretty indicative of what happens a lot um is there's an us versus them mentality that's been beaten into your head um and you and this find is the pastors that do it that they teach the people that if someone yeah. says happy holidays that they're trying to destroy your faith and you need to see them as an outsider yeah so that particular example um comes from like a 1945 uh i forget the john birch society that they like <laughs> they said like oh like uh, there's a communist plot to take the christ out of christmas and it's stuck today um and uh newt gingrich when he was running in 2012 was asked um how his faith would relate to its presidency and he said there's a war on christians and that's scary um because if a president's like willing to pit citizen against citizen and say there's a war against christians when you know in god we trust i'm pretty sure is still on the dollar bill um it's it's truly frightening um well jim Jim baker actually brought this up on his show maybe two or three weeks ago and they said that only a few years ago it was illegal to say merry christmas but now but now Donald Trump has made it safe again so you won't uh, get arrested. So uh yeah, I man, I can go into politics a little bit. Um so first off, shout out to my Yang gang. I'm all for Yang, Andrew Yang. I had to just say that. But um but what uh, what's interesting with Donald Trump is uh he he won the evangelical vote. Um which is a huge vote because white evangelicals cover around 30% of the US population. So, I mean, pretty substantial chunk. So if you win a group that's easy to um, manipulate and uh, force them to think monolithically, um, he won that vote. And what's crazy is uh, white evangelicals were polled on, like, why they voted for Trump. And when I saw this, I went, okay, so it's abortion, right? Like, that's why they voted for him. They thought somehow he'd reverse Roe v. Wade or something. And uh, when I clicked on it, their number one concern was the economy. Um, and they thought Trump would fix the economy. And what, what I find interesting about that is evangelicals like to talk the talk about like being for the poor, being for the oppressed and stuff. I've never met a group of people more concerned about money. Um, they're, they're constantly worried about it. And I think it's one led by example uh, among the cult leaders and churches, they clearly care about money. Um, and then I think uh, secondarily, they don't just see it, but the, they typically are pretty privileged people in evangelical churches. Um, and uh, they, you know, go to church on Sunday. They will go to their nine to five. They put their, you know, kids in a few uh, sports programs, and and that's their life. And they've settled into it, and it's comfortable. Um, all the while not realizing that these cult leaders are manipulating them for uh, ulterior agendas. Now, you can go to YouTube and you can put in like crazy preachers and whatnot, and you find all sorts of egregious behavior by some of these people. And it's in, and that doesn't shock me that much. Right. What does shock me is that when you look into some of these and then you, you'll hear like an interview with some of the people in the church, they'll be like, oh, well, that's okay. You know, so so there's one pastor that I see, I think in North Carolina, where he said if if you think your son is gay, you should snap his wrist. Oh yeah, um, I saw that one. Yeah. Yeah, and then he also said that you know he was at a youth summer camp and he thought one of the students 
wasn't taking... Oh, he taking... punches him in the face? Yeah, he wasn't taking... Yeah. He said, you're not taking the Lord serious, so I punched him in the face. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite. It's 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 unbelievable. And, like, I think you hear someone in the background go, amen, and you're like, what? And, they, and they, people tend to think there's violence against either family oh, members or other people is is somehow okay... But yeah. I can't imagine anyone getting away with such saying such things if they weren't um, in front of a church. Ooh, I have a story that hopefully won't get me sued. Um, so I one of the, the this is really the beginning of my book, so this ties in well. Um, when I was sixteen, I was going to this church, uh, and I will keep it as vague as I can so no one sues me. Um, and the youth, youth, the you know teenagers at that church um, were not respected very well. Part of it was I was in a punk rock band with my best friend who went to that church as well. So we you know had like long hair, wore skinny jeans, like, um, and this particular church was just not into that vibe. Um, and so we were constantly like given a harder time than most. And, you know, we're teenagers, so when we're given a hard time, we're going to give it, you know, back twice as hard, right? So we would come in late to church, which is really not that big a deal. But to some people, that was the most atrocious thing ever because we were, I, I, my guess is it was breaking the order and breaking the control. Um, and so what they would do is when it was church time, they'd flick the lights, you know, on and off, on and off, like, come on, it's time. And so me and uh, the other teenagers, we were, you know, in a circle talking, and we saw it and kind of rolled our eyes and kept talking. And then the guy does it again. He flips the lights over and over, and he's like, come on in. And then we're like, we'll be in in a second. And then he, he yelled at me in that way that only your dad can yell at you, you know, where he was just like, John. But yeah, <laughs> very, very deep voice. He's like, come in now. And I'm very concerned, so I, I go up. Everyone else went into the church, and I, so I tried to start talking to him. And I'm a speaker, so my, my, I have big gestures. So my gestures are pretty big. I'm like, hey, hey, hey. And he's like, you don't get to talk to me. You don't get to talk to me. You're too young. You're too young. You don't get to talk to me. And he slapped my hand out of the way. Um, and it was mind-blowing. And that's actually what started. I don't mention all those details in the book, but that's what started my inspiration to write a letter um, to those church leaders Um and when I when I wrote that letter and I emailed it to the pastor, I ended up having a meeting where um where I really started hearing the most ridiculous things I think I've ever heard in my life, and that's kind of what started me on this path of I need to be critical of um of the church leaders around me. So they they would not accept any criticism for for their behavior. Oh, not at all. Quite the opposite. Um. So when I wrote my letter to criticize them. Uh, it was, I kind of broke it down into certain categories. Like I was like, so you're just respectful for youth. Um, we've tried to volunteer to help with music and you've said, no, we don't trust you. Um, I don't. And then like I was using uh, Bible references the whole time. Like I was very confused. In fact, there's one Bible verse that, um, says, uh, let no one despise you for your youth. Um, pretty plain English. And by the time I, uh, I, well, plain Greek, but uh, eventually English. <laughs> and so um, when I when I got into the room with them, there were three elders there and me. Uh, they they gaslighted me and basically said uh, that verse means you shouldn't be worthy of despise. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it, it it was eye opening. Uh, they called my long hair sinful because I was trying to look like the world. Um, they said I shouldn't hug girls so much. Uh, there was a lot of content in that meeting that was clearly um, them just kind of throwing a fit at a 16-year-old who solved problems in their community. So uh, what's going on with church membership? I, I mean, I seem to see the, the trend that it's going down. Is, is that, does that seem to be the case? Um, are people, sort of, are people catching on to this and sort of moving on? Uh, so the biggest problem is in any market, you have to get young people um, to stick around or else your market fails, right? Because um, that's, that's the next generation or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm on the cutoff, uh, the cusp of the cutoff of a millennial. Um, and millennials do not like church. They're over church. <laughs> they 
the stories I have are not that dissimilar from a lot of them. And we're kind of, uh, we, you know, grew up with the internet. We have more, um, uh, quick access to a lot of other people's stories. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the, the trend is downward, but, um, churches are hard at work trying to figure out how to keep young people around and are making some very interesting compromises, um, in order to try to maintain their power still. Um, they're rebranding, they're naming their churches, all these trendy names. Um, they're, you know, got, they got the rock music going. They're really, really trying. Um, so I don't know, um, We'll, we'll see what happens with Gen Z, um, and how they interpret church, um, because less of them were forced into it. So there might be this weird kind of dynamic where they didn't grow up with negative connotations, so they might gravitate towards it more, but, but it's really hard to tell. But yeah, overall, church attendance is going down, um, but people are still happy to identify with churches, um, without much hesitation. You ask the, uh, you know, 10 people on the street, um, are you a Christian? Like over half of them will say, yeah. Um, and that's, that is part of the culture in the U S. And what about sort of the more, more cult driven outfits? Like I, I keep hearing about these sort of end times Christian groups that are growing where they're, you know, saying the end is near Trump is part of it. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's that there's that separate um, you know book, the cult of Trump, and the, and um, yeah. there there are like um, Trump's and Trump is fascinating on many levels, <laughs> um, but uh, the 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 reason I think evangelicals uh, have gravitated towards him and people like him who just kind of have this like um, you can't mess with me mentality is because they've been fed this myth of oppression for a long time, that they're the ones who are oppressed. They're being persecuted. Um, there's a great book uh, called the, the myth of persecution by, um, I think her name's Candace. She's a professor. Can, can, Candace, maybe um, she's a professor over at a, a Notre Dame and uh, one of the leaders in ancient church history. Um, and she really breaks down how there were all these manufactured stories of martyrs and stuff and how Christians kind of took um, early anti-Semitism and kind of co coaxed it in their own um, stench, so to speak, and said people uh, people hated us. You know, the, 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 it wasn't Jews, it was Christians. Christians were persecuted. Christians were persecuted. Christians are persecuted. They want to take the Christ out of Christmas, you know. Um, there's a, a guy, I forget his name, but he owned, uh, like, Masterpiece Cake Shop, and then the, um, there was a homosexual couple that wanted him to do, uh, their wedding cake, and he refused, and it blew up into this whole thing where they sued him, and then he countersued, and people were like, see, the church is still being persecuted, and mm -hmm. it was like, no, that's not what happened. A guy refused to bake people cakes, and then there were lawsuits. That's all that happened. No one was being, like, you know, put on a stake and burnt. <laughs> um, and so I think the reason <laughs> someone, like, uh, 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 that people gravitate towards the more violent guys is it feels like a leader who can, like, uh, protect you from that this supposed oppression that you're under. Um, and that's why they gravitate towards them. I think that's one possible reason, at least. All right. So, um, what's what's next? So we've got the first book. It comes out on Christmas. Correct. Um, do you have the follow up coming out on Easter? Is, is that <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. I'm I'm you know I'm every every Christian holiday. I'm just gonna try to get more and more people angry. <laughs> um, that, that's my goal. No, um, I have a I have a lot of stuff in the works. Um, so I. Um, I do kind of want to, I, have been married and I'm now divorced. Um, it was quite quick. Um, and I, I am interested in writing about that. I do hint at it in this book, how specifically, um, churches, uh, manipulate young people into, uh, this, this horrible purity culture where, um, you're not allowed to have sex until you're married and then don't talk about it with anyone but God. Um, was that was that a problem in your in your marriage? I don't want to pry too deeply. Yeah. Oh uh, no, absolutely it was. Um, there was shame. There was shame on both ends. She grew up Christian as well, um, and uh, there, in, both explicitly and implicitly, there was a lot of um, shame and, and intimacy issues due to that. 
Um, and beyond that, probably a, a even worse problem because, you know, those, those things can be worked out over time. Um, the bigger issue was, um, I, I felt that, uh, like such a failure in different ways that, um, that I felt like my responsibility was to like fix my life with God before it was fix my life with my spouse. Um, I mean, I remember like knowing I had issues I needed to talk about with my wife, but I'd be go take a shower and pray about it. Um, and that is conditioning. There's no reason why that would be a good idea, um, to, to flock to, um, you know, the guy in the sky instead of the girl right next to you. Um, it's, it's truly upsetting and I see it all the time. Um, divorce rates inside of church, uh, are no different than outside. Um, you know, it's still around, hovers around 50%. Um, and uh yeah it, it's pretty tragic and and I'll even I'll, I'll go further so, so, the so, church so, well, 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 I want yeah. to touch on that just for a moment yeah. so I, I mean there, there is a lot of shame around sex in, yeah. in some of these churches and it seems to me that um you know having seen some of these folks you're like I'm saving myself for marriage and then they're 30 yeah and they haven't been with anyone yet and then they get married I mean is it just the case that these are people who don't really want to have sex yeah, that's a whole another thing, right? Because uh, if I went to a church and said, I think I might be asexual, <laughs> that would be like, well, is that gay? Because you can't be that, you know? I mean, like, um, the, the, the lack of education around sex in churches, I mean, I don't even know how high up it goes. I don't know if, you know, pastors even know how to have sex half the time. Like, um, it, it, it's a very fascinating dynamic where... Um, and an anti-biblical one at that. I mean, you know, the Bible's pretty clear that you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, like, the... the, But there... I don't know. There's a lot at play with that issue, which is why it might take another book to tackle. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, purity culture uh, has been dissected before. And what's really upsetting, I would say it primarily affects young Christian women who are told that um, their responsibility is to bridle the lust of men. Like there, that's why there's these crazy dress codes in private Christian schools where girls can't show their shoulders. Um, like there, the the attitude is women have a responsibility to keep us horny boys under control. Um, and it's and it's honestly terrible uh, because they grow up their whole lives thinking that, and then yeah, you get married and you're told, okay, now have at it, and you're like, but I've been conditioned to think this is gross. I been conditioned to think this is terrible i've been conditioned to think this might send me to hell um and it's and it's horrible um so just getting married doesn't doesn't sort of change that no i mean it's a it's a document um and and what's funny is i mean like what ends up happening it certainly happened with me and i know it's happened with others is you do everything but sex i mean that's your solution to the problem and that's what yeah, but prior to being too. married, but then after getting married, it doesn't sort of change, doesn't change right. the view. It's like, well, I've waited all my life because, because, because the church says now that I'm married, it's okay, uh, right. to, 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 to get on with it. But, but somehow they still feel shame and guilt, even though this is supposed to be when you're supposed to have sex. Yeah, I mean, shame is like probably the, the best weapon at a cult leader's disposal. I mean, they, it, it it, it's effective. It works. It contains um, your uh, followers to your control, um, and uh, it, it's used in, in various ways. Honestly, um, with sex, with a bunch of other things, and it, and it really is crazy. I mean, I talk about in my book um, how like consent from a church leader is more important than consent from you um, when it comes to sex, because um, when you're a young couple, you will be interviewed um, by your church leaders at some point, either formally or informally. Um, they will say, hey, so what are your intentions? And they'll just straight up ask you, are you having sex? I mean, like they want to be involved in that intimate part of your life. And when you're 21, that's an inappropriate dynamic half the time, especially when some of these church leaders are 60, 70 years old and they're prying into your sex life. It's... It's uncomfortable and it and it borders on um on a uh, on abuse to be honest. So I'm just going to ask, what, what do you hope people get um, when they read your book? Ooh, um, <laughs> depressed. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I um, 
there's there's a couple of things I want them to do. I want them to, in general, um, evaluate what their who their allegiance is to in general. Um, and it it might not be a church, you know. I mean, there's probably someone who will pick up the book who's like, this has not been my experience with churches at all. You know, this church has been great. They've given me, you know, uh, so much help and support and yada yada. What I want them to do is say, okay, but is there anything subtle going on um, that you're not talking about? Because the the toxicity of churches um, really boils down to you can't be your authentic self. Um. And that's that's a tragedy when you can't be your authentic self. So I I, I would hope that someone reading this would go, Some, th- something's been going on in my life that I can't talk about with these people. Why can't I talk about it with them? What's going on that's keeping me from talking about um, this subject with them? And is it the fact uh, that they're controlling me, containing me, and asking me to convert other people to this religion, and that's their thing they care about most. Because if they care about that power structure more than you, uh, you got to get out. You got, and uh, it feels like I escaped. Um, that is how it feels um, when I talk about Christianity. And most people won't talk about Christianity like that. But you know, more and more people are okay with calling Mormonism a cult, and certainly Scientology a cult. Um, but for some reason, calling Christianity a cult seems taboo still. And I'm like, no, it's it doesn't have to be, but it certainly has become one. And since it's become one, we need to deal with it as such. Okay. Now, do you have a website that people can send all their hate mail to? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And please, little little trade secret. If you're angry at me, comment on my posts on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook, John Burner. The more engagements I get, the better for me. So feel free to just have <laughs> at it. Um, I love it. I think it's great. Um, so, yeah, you can either check out my Facebook page, which is John Burner. Um, yeah, I think it's Facebook.com slash how it be Johnny B. Um, and then uh, I do have a website as well, vernerbooks.com. That's V-E-R-N-E-R-B-O-O-K-S.com. And uh, it'll link to all the info about me. And uh, there, there's a link to send hate mail. So. Oh, great. Fantastic. <laughs> um, let's uh, give us a little bit of a break, please, yeah. uh, toward the attention of you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, this has been great. Um, now, the book is called The Cult of Christianity. And the author is uh, John Werner, and he's been our guest. Um, Thank you for being on the show. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.